Many of our guests this season shared with us when they were far enough removed from their suffering that they were able to discern things more clearly, that they were able to see the bigger picture of what God was doing. But when we're in the midst of suffering, those things can seem impossible. When the injustice of what we're experiencing becomes oppressive, it can be hard to understand what is happening and what to do about it. Discernment is something that scripture talks about often. And honestly, I think most of the time we don't fully understand what discernment is. Discernment is more than just facts. Discernment is being able to grasp a situation, even if it doesn't seem to mesh with the facts. Now today's guest Scott makes it clear that he is very much still in the midst of suffering. It hasn't even been a year since his daughter died. Based on the facts that he's gathered, he believes that she was killed. He's finding himself in this difficult place of trying to discern what happened and what to do, balancing the facts that he's gathered alongside the invitations that God might be giving. One of those invitations, for example, is that he would practice forgiveness. And as he communicates so well in this conversation, there are some situations in which we don't have the strength to forgive, and yet God is able. Scott also mentions that there are a lot of people that haven't believed his story. And I wanted to remind you of something that I've mentioned in previous episodes. The space that you're about to enter is meant to be one where guests can feel free to process openly and authentically. And you might end up being one of those folks that don't see things the same way as he does. I want to invite you to a little act of discernment as you listen. Your invitation is not to decide what exactly happened with Scott's daughter, but to practice what it means to sit with Scott and to invite God to speak in the midst. Because as a father who has lost a child, Scott is still navigating that hard, hard place of suffering, trying his best to make sense of things that don't make any sense at all, and trying to honor God in the midst. And as Peter and others in Scripture demonstrated, that can be incredibly difficult no matter how committed we are. Because the truth is, discernment is actually something we spend a lifetime pursuing and discovering. And the good news is it's a gift that God wants to give. You're listening to episode 136 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I thank you for this opportunity for Scott and I to talk, that you connected us, that you made this space now for us to have a conversation. I'm excited because I don't know where you're going to take this conversation. I know a little bit about Scott's story, but you know all of it. So I pray that you would guide our time, guide our words, guide our processing so that in this space, we can actually come to know you a little more deeply, that you could be honored and glorified. All this I pray in your most holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Scott, I am glad that we connected. And what's interesting is, you know, the season that I'm in, the sitting and suffering season, I thought it was actually about to end. And then suddenly there is a new influx of folks connecting. I really believe God has something he wants to bring out in continuing this. But before we jump into a conversation, you know, for those that are listening, what would you want them to know about who you are as we start this conversation? I would say the main thing that I would want them to know is that my background is as a self-made man. And where I'm at today is realizing what I've known in my head, but I'm realizing it in my heart is that I can do nothing without him. He has never been the problem. You know, I was in the way. I prayed to have him do whatever it would take to break me a long time ago, over 15 years ago. And of course, he's never the problem. But I'm broken now. And it's not a one-time thing. That would be the take-home message. I mean, I still fight it. I mean, I'm fighting that every day, wanting to do my own thing versus walking with him. Well, what's so powerful about what you just said, even right there, is the reality that you have come to recognize who God is in the midst. And yet you said, and I still fight it, though. And I think that's just wild that we're like that, that we are so confident in how we see life and understand life that even when we've found ourselves broken, even when God has come and brought restoration, we could still fall back into old ways of thinking. But I know for you, this space of being broken was not a small and light thing. It involves your daughter, Grace. And tell me a little bit of the story about Grace. So Grace, she is likely the person God used to break me. I see things in a completely different light right now because of Grace's death. But even while she was alive, so Grace was 19 when she was killed. She had Down syndrome. And while she was alive, 
she opened my eyes. I mean, she could see things that I couldn't see or that I saw, but she saw them earlier when she was born. We had no idea she had Down syndrome beforehand. You know, when she came out, I said to my wife, I think she has Down syndrome. And the doctors came in a couple hours later and said, we suspect your daughter has Down syndrome. Do you want to keep her? And that was a shock to us, you know. Of course we want to keep her. Where does this even come from? It's because most people abort Down syndrome children. 67% are aborted in the United States today before they're born, obviously. You know, so of course we wanted to keep her. Anyway, their attitude was that we wouldn't want to. And they said, we know people are waiting to adopt. They called them children such as these. That was a strange thing. We had already decided we were going to name her Grace or Faith, and ultimately we decided on Grace. And once Grace understood her name, it's interesting. She just always had this way. She was ahead of the curve relative to Down syndrome. She was very high functioning. When she learned that her name was based on God's grace, she would tell people that she was named after one of God's principles. She connected the dots so well that she called me earthly dad. And she called my wife Earthly Mom when she would write us notes. I'll just show you what. So, I mean, here's a note from Grace to me. It says, love you, Earthly Dad. Yeah, yeah. I remember a story from when she was young. So she was probably six or seven. And Cindy is my wife. And we got in an argument. And she said to us, well, aren't you supposed to say you're sorry? And so I said, Grace, that's right. And so I apologized to Cindy. Cindy apologized to me. And this was Grace's level of knowledge already at this age. So, I mean, she had this level of knowledge of God that wasn't anything we gave her. God did it all. Anyway, she said then, well, aren't you supposed to kiss? Yeah, of course, that's right on. You know, the words mean nothing if it's not in your heart. And so then I said, Grace, that's exactly right. So, of course, I was willing and my wife wasn't quite willing. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Grace also had quite a sense of humor. Oh my gosh, she was she was funny. She could see things for what they are. So I brought this into my office last week because of these podcasts. This was a sign that Grace and I would see often. Mm -hmm. What you're seeing is a crosswalk, which has the stick figure and the bike over the top of the stick figure, which of course to you and I means, you know, this is a crosswalk for people and bikes. Well, when Grace saw that sign for the first time, through her lens of being humorous, she said, Dad, look at that sign. It says, watch out for falling bikes. <laughs> yeah. uh, she made life an absolute joy. She was like the idea of anybody that's had a 10-year-old in their life knows that it's the absolute most fun age. You know, they're inquisitive. They have the utmost respect for the parents. They listen. And Grace, once she turned 10, she basically just stayed 10. She was just an absolute joy. She was a gift. And I don't know why God gave her to us from the point of view of we certainly didn't deserve a gift like Grace, but you know, I'm starting to understand why he gave her to us as far as his sovereign plan. You know, I've got a, certainly a glimpse into it now. So Grace was killed on October 13th of 2021. In April, I had about 500 hours of research into her case. And I concluded in April that she was murdered instead of just killed. Grace's story is well documented on her website, so people can go see the story there. Grace's death certificate listed two causes of death. One is acute respiratory failure, and the other one is COVID-19 pneumonia. Grace did not die of COVID. There was three things they did to her that caused her death. So acute respiratory failure was definitely a cause of death, but it was inflicted by the hospital. They used a sedation drug called Presidex, and each of these drugs has a package insert that they're supposed to follow. The package insert for Presidex says to not use for more than 24 hours, or it causes, it isn't that it may cause, it does cause acute respiratory failure, Grace's first cause of death on the death certificate. They used Presidex on Grace for four full days before her last day. Yeah. Her last day, they ratcheted up the dose to 14 times the original dose. There's no reason Grace needed to be sedated at all. The hospital uses sedation for three specific reasons, all of which are terrible. The first one is to set up a ventilator. A patient has to be sedated in order to be vented. They asked my wife and I five different times to give them a pre-authorization to use a ventilator just in case it was needed. Well, of course, if we would have authorized it, they would have done it right away. The second reason they use Presidex is the amount of money they receive for the stay goes up. 
And what I mean by that specifically is that the room gets classified as ICU as soon as the patient's sedated. So the amount of money that the hospital receives for the room charge goes up. In Grace's case, she never changed rooms, nor did the care change, but the amount the hospital received goes up. And the third and maybe most important is that once a patient is on a sedation med, they can't be removed from the hospital. So they have the patient basically in handcuffs unless the guardian or the advocate signs off on taking responsibility. It's called against medical advice. So you're signing off on taking personal responsibility, not just for the bill, but for the care. Most people don't want to do that. Of course, we would have done it easily if we would have known what was going on. So that cause of death is fairly significant. The second cause of death is more significant. Of course, this isn't on the death certificate, but we know that this is the literal cause of Grace's death that day. In the last 29 minutes that they were giving her meds, which was starting at 546 in the evening of Grace's last day of October 13th, not only was she on this 14 times dose of Presidex, but at 546, they gave her an anti-anxiety med. Grace was already knocked out at this point. And then at 549, three minutes later, they gave her another dose that was lorazepam. So two doses of lorazepam, three minutes apart. Then at 615, they gave her morphine as an IV push. So that combination of meds in 29 minutes would have taken anybody out. Those are called end-of-life meds that people get in hospice. And so at the beginning, I thought this might just be malpractice. But as I learned how that actually shakes out and the package insert for morphine says to not combine those meds because they're contraindicated and cumulative. So when I learned that, along with the steps they had to go through, the doctor had to order the meds, the pharmacist had to sign off on the order, the alarm for the hospital had to be shut off because when you give contraindicated meds, it sets off an alarm. And then the nurse in charge of Grace's care was a 14-year experienced ICU nurse that day. So, I mean, there's no way that that can be looked at other than intentional at that point. And then the third cause of death, which is the worst, is as if these two aren't bad enough. My daughter Jessica was now the advocate in the room. I was taken out by an armed guard three days earlier. And when she called my wife and I at 7.20, they gave Grace the morphine at 6.15. She called us panicking at 7.20 and said, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. What do I do? I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They won't come in. So Cindy and I start screaming through this FaceTime call, save our daughter. And they hollered back, she's DNR, which stands for do not resuscitate. And we hollered, she's not DNR, save our daughter. They refused to come in. The morphine package insert says specifically they're supposed to keep the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. Neither happened. We found out after the fact the doctor put an illegal DNR order on Grace's life at 10.56 the morning of her last day, eight minutes after they had increased this dose of Presidex to 14 times the original dose. Interesting coincidence and important to understand the sequence is at 8 o'clock that morning, the doctor called Cindy and I at home. The purpose of the call was for the fifth time to request this ventilator. And when we said no, he immediately switched gears to Grace had such a good day yesterday, which we knew she did, that we should work on nutrition. So we foolishly approved a feeding tube and foolishly because I see it as all now part of the whole setup. What I believe is the motive behind this is financial from the hospital's perspective because the hospital was full. They had no ICU beds available. They realized that we weren't going to give them a $300,000 ticket, and so they had to figure out a different way to take Grace out. Of course, that's speculation on my part. The facts I gave relative to the meds are not speculation at all. Man, loss is one thing, right? Carrying the weight of loss and the grief of loss. But when there's so many unknowns, when there's so many questionable things, when there's so many things that seem contradictory, suddenly that loss is a lot harder to walk through and work through. Right. If you experience a loss and it's very clear, this is what happened and everybody agrees and this is sad, then you can all heal and grieve together. Right. But when you have opposition, man, I can't imagine how that stifled your ability as a father to grieve the loss of the daughter you loved. Right. And then for that to continue, because you know we're almost at a year. You know, part of what I've gathered is one, you've been working on her case, which means there's a lot of time spent going over these details, having to go back into hard moments that in your humanity, you might not want to think about. 
And you found yourself in spaces where you're sharing the story. I mean, right now you just shared the story again. And so one, I just want to name when it comes to this concept of sitting and suffering, that is a hard space to have to sit and to continue to sit because you want justice for your daughter. It's not something that somebody could just say, oh, just move on. It's like, there's something that's happened here. And I love my daughter too much to move on. And so I just want to name the weight of that space. You know, the other piece of this is when you started sharing your story, you shared that when your daughter was born, the doctor said, we think she has Down syndrome and assumed that you wouldn't want your daughter. Your love for your daughter, even from the moment you met her, made that not even an option. For the lifetime of your daughter, though, as many moments of joy as there were with signs and things like that, there were also challenges that you and your wife, your family decided to step into because there are challenges that come with Down syndrome. There are ways that her life had to operate differently, accommodations that you needed to make. And as you were talking, it made me think of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham trusting God for a child and then getting to this moment where it seems like God's going to take his child away. You could say, but God, I've been seeking you and honoring you and trying to do what you wanted. And so you have the grief of that front end piece and the grief of this back end piece of there's still denial of what happened. There's still questions of what happened. There's still frustration around what happened. How has God equipped you to keep waking up and showing up each day with the weight of that front end and the weight of what's ahead? That's a fantastic question. He's equipped me my whole life. I just didn't see it. Mm. What's interesting is, you know, obviously knowing God is sovereign, he knew I would wake up with this story. So he taught me how to compartmentalize the story. I mean, I've lost it a few times on air. I've been on air over 200 times and I probably lost it two or three times. When I lose it is when people start asking real detailed questions about Grace's life. Yeah. You know, because I never missed somebody like this. She was just, she was great. She was a special kid. So anyway, how did God equip me? You know, it's interesting because after Grace was born, I switched careers. I've been an entrepreneur essentially my whole life, other than when I first graduated from college. And I owned a CPA firm. I did strategic planning, real high level stuff. About the time Grace was born, we started a small pond management company. And then after Grace was born, I just saw, well, this is going to be my life because it's something I can do with her. You know, it's pretty simple business. Well, ultimately, God, you know, he has always blessed me with this ability to create things. After Grace was born, I just thought, well, this is so that she can be taken care of after we're gone. I created a business. I have employees. After my death, the business can continue. Grace will be taken care of. So I just saw it all that way. This is why God gave me those gifts to be able to create something and train other men so that grace would be taken care of. Well, ultimately, those gifts are being used right now. I didn't realize that those gifts had nothing to do with, obviously, grace isn't here. So they're not supposed to be used for that purpose. So maybe the biggest miracle that I don't talk about with what's happened is that I was diagnosed with heart disease four years ago. Once I got diagnosed with heart disease, I really got involved with training my guys more than I had before. I've essentially turned the business over to them. I'm only working in the business now about a half a day a week because I'm working 90 hours a week on Grace's case. And, you know, that's quite a miracle that I would have been at all that training in place before Grace's death so I could be able to do this. A friend of mine suggested rereading the book of Esther. And just to give a very short version as to how I see this right now is Esther became queen, which is quite a series of non-coincidences. So I'm calling God's sovereign way a non-coincidence. You know, so she becomes queen. I mean, that doesn't make any sense even by itself. But I mean, ultimately, when Mordecai finds out that the king signed an edict to kill all the Jews, you know, he tells Esther, you know, you got to talk with the king. She said, well, I can't do that. That's not how it works. He's got to reach out his hand first. And he says to Esther, how do you know that you're not queen for a time such as this? And that has become a piece of this puzzle. Originally, the piece was, and it still is, is that you see this Goliath that we're really fighting, which is huge. It's not just Ascension Hospital system, which we're in a fight with, but this is all of mankind. 
Well, as you get exposed to that and you realize, okay, this is a David and Goliath story, and I've been made for a time such as this. I mean, it gives you quite a motivation when you realize God's behind you. It makes me think of another person that I was able to have a conversation with earlier this year. Her name is Susan, and she had her daughter taken away by CPS for false reasons. And she had to navigate this space of wrestling with the reality that in a lot of ways, there are reasons that Child Protective Services exist that are good. She experienced that not going in a good way at actually harming their family and had to tread the space of how do you balance that? And in the same way, I can imagine people listening, many of them thinking, but wait, hospitals are supposed to be good. Hospitals are supposed to be safe. And you're having to tread the space of saying, yes, in many instances, also in this instance, something happened that was not good. And man, there is this hard space that I feel like we are invited into sometimes as humans that (laughs) is almost beyond our capacity to navigate. And that's how do we tread this space? How do we communicate? How do we navigate our emotions in such a way that is true to who we are and what we've experienced while still honoring God, right? So as you're talking, I was thinking about times in my life where, you know, I told you before we started recording, this podcast exists because God invited me to public transparency. Well, there were wrongs that had been done against me. And I found myself often wrestling with how do I communicate these wrongs? And so how have you found yourself treading that space of there's many ways a person could react going through what you've experienced, but you are also a person with a conviction to seek and honor God in the midst. There's pain, there's questions. How has God equipped you to navigate that? He did two very specific things that made me ready. Number one is I went into a different hospital after Grace died three days later. And I was significantly worse off. So Grace died on October 13th. I went into the hospital on October 16th. I was having a hard time breathing. I had COVID real bad, roughly three times worse than Grace. And that hospital did exactly opposite of the hospital that Grace was killed at. They chose to not buy into the government incentives. And they treated me like the Hippocratic Oath requires. So that allowed me to objectively tell the story because I could see hospital A versus hospital B and see that the care was exactly opposite. If Grace would have went to the hospital I went to, she would be alive today. And if I would have went to the hospital Grace went to, I would be dead today. So that allowed me to objectively tell the story. I'm not discounting God's sovereign will here. Of course, you know that. But the other thing that he used to equip me was way more significant than that. I told you already, I was given heart disease. My son took his life by suicide three years before Grace died. Mm -hmm. Then Grace died. Then I almost died. And after I got out of the hospital, my daughter Jessica called me the day after I I made it. And she said, Dad, what do I do? You know, my wife is a basket case. You know, she's trying to plan the funeral. I said, Jess, just keep planning. Just keep going. And if I don't make it, you're going to be doing two funerals instead of one. Yeah. I mean, I was bad. I called my right-hand guy. I said, I think this is my last day. Yeah. And I stayed in the hospital only four days. They turned me around in 24 hours. The week after I got out, a friend of mine sent me a sermon about God gives grace to the humble. And during that week, when God broke me, He also gave me a spirit of forgiveness, and that was critical to telling the story. I mean, I never asked him. The first Christian book I read way back, you know, 25 years ago, was Sit, Walk, Stand by Watchman Nee. And in that book, he goes through a story of a man who was overseas. He got a Dear John letter from his wife while he was there. When he got back, he found out not only, of course, that his wife divorced him, but she married his best friend. Mm. And he said to the author, Watchman Nee, he said, God tells me I'm supposed to forgive them, but I can't. And the author tells him, stop trying. We can forgive some offenses, but you can't forgive somebody who took your wife. You know, you can't forgive that. You can't forgive a doctor and nurse who killed your daughter. That's impossible. But that's what God does. He does the impossible. I mean, there's no gospel if we can do it on your own. That was the single most important thing he did to equip me to tell the story. Yeah. That last piece is really powerful, and particularly the way you worded it. We can't, in our own power, forgive those who have wronged us so deeply, and yet God can. 
that God can do the impossible. And I appreciate you sharing that because there are so many people that have experienced deep, profound injustices, wrongs done against them, experienced tremendous loss that shouldn't have happened. And they can see the individual or individuals (laughs) attached to it. It makes me think of Jesus when he was in the midst of the crucifixion. The wrongs that were done against him were... I mean, we can't grasp how phenomenally wrong they were. I mean, he was the most innocent man and he was being beaten, spit on, mocked, his clothes taken and auctioned off to whoever wanted him. And he's seeing all this and he's experiencing the most excruciating pain that is the most undeserved pain. And he says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. At one moment, Jesus is recognizing they are physically doing this. But at the other moment, he's also recognizing that they don't understand really what they're doing. They don't understand the depth of it. That's spiritual wisdom, right? That in our humanity, it's hard for us to get. And in our pain, it's even harder for us to get. But when God gives us that gift, and this is the beauty of your story is your daughter's name, Grace, how much it's already woven in symbolic ways in this story. You you talked about how y'all didn't deserve the gift that she was. The gift of grace is the way that she put in. You're talking about a person, but then you talked about the gift of the grace that God gives us. And even this moment of God bringing this ability to forgive where in and of yourself, like you couldn't have mustered it. It is profound what God gives us, what he does for us, who he is for us, that we don't deserve. You know, you're in the midst still, though, of trying to navigate this. So how does that awareness of God's ability to forgive when it's impossible for man shape how you engage her case and how you engage doctors? And how does that impact that? Well, the direct impact was, you know, at the beginning, I started researching medical malpractice. You know, what is the law? Then I found out that basically there's no legal case. So that was really strange to me, but I thought, well, it doesn't really matter because I obviously didn't have any revenge because you have forgiveness. But then what about the idea of justice? What does justice look like? So I've referenced that same scripture you referenced is that, you know, they did not know what they're doing. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be accountable. You know, so ultimately I filed complaints against the doctor in the hospital with the state examining boards. And, you know, they did supposed investigations. And I say supposed now with confidence because we received a copy of the doctor's investigation. There was no investigation at all. And they gave them a pass. And it was, you know, much deeper than that. When you look at the legal piece, so Grace was 19. So that means she's an adult. So when I looked up what is the law relative to medical malpractice, the general legal claim is loss of companionship. And by state statute, there's no loss of companionship when somebody's an adult. So then there's really no legal claim because medical malpractice is the other legal claim. With medical malpractice, there's a limitation of $750,000, which seems like a lot, but it's nothing in the scheme of what it takes for a case. And the attorneys can only take a third. So I talked with the best medical malpractice attorney in the state of Wisconsin and told him, you know, we'll just sign over the other two thirds to you. And the statute prevents that from even happening. He says, you can't do it. And he said, even in slam duck cases like this appears to be, he said, we only have a one in 10 chance. I said, how can that be? And he said, I'll give you an example. He said, I I represented a patient who had a sponge sewn up inside of him. He represented the family. He said, we lost. I said, how could you lose that case? He said, I brought 10 expert witnesses and the hospital brought 100. Mm. Envision a jury hearing this. And so they lost. And so that really, I thought, okay, well, that door closed. I really didn't look at it as hopeless because I really had come to the point of thinking justice in this case is the doctor and nurse repenting. That's the ultimate justice, not just repenting for what they did to grace, but repenting to the point that they would accept Jesus into their life. That's the ultimate justice. Well, then in this process, you know, another door opened up. I mean, you can't make up these doors that opened up. So Tom Renz, Tom is the number one attorney in the country that's fighting all this COVID mania. He's got a hold of Grace's case. He asked me to be on his podcast. He falls in love with Grace. He asked me to come on a second time and just talk about Grace. Well, then he said, yeah, I think that we should pursue Grace's case. And I told him what I just told you. And he said, there's ways to get through this. I said, well, Tom, I'm really not after money or anything like that. And he said, this is about stopping the behavior. 
and the legal system is one of the fastest ways we can stop a behavior. And if we get a hundred million out of this suit, you know, I just told them we'll give it all back to your organization because then they can file more lawsuits as a tool to stop these behaviors. So ultimately he decided to take on Grace's case and that's what's going on now relative to the case. So when I told you at the beginning, I'm spending 90 hours a week on Grace's case, it's not on the legal case yet. I'm doing some things on that, but that hasn't hit stride yet. What I'm focusing still on is the research and then the podcast. So any opportunity, small and large, we're taking to get this message out. You're bringing in this interesting element of this idea of sitting and suffering. Because one, as we've already talked about, you're still in the midst of this. It's still a hard, hard place to navigate. There's still a lot of things that you're longing for resolution for. And some of the stories I've had the privilege of hearing, they were hard stories, but the thing happened and now it's just healing from that thing. You know, your story is interesting in that you're having to navigate this and try to find healing in the midst of opposition and the midst of brokenness. And when it's just healing from something that happened in the past, that's one thing, but learning how to continue to step and heal when there are still, (laughs) it's always like arrows flying at you is a whole other thing. You know, there could be somebody listening that's in a similar space where maybe it's some system, the way that it operates, individuals within that weren't doing their job in the accurate way or the system itself is broken. And they have experienced the ramifications of that. They have suffered as a result of that. How would you encourage someone who's currently sitting in that type of space of suffering? Well, when my son Travis died, I was about two hours away. My wife called me. So as I was driving, I called my best friend. He said, Scott, you're going to have to walk through this. And that's what I would tell any person that's facing this. You can't lay in bed depressed all day. I mean, I've had plenty of days like that, but that's unbelief. God wants you to keep walking. You know, even if it's just a baby step, keep walking forward. You know, you still have things that you're responsible for. And he'll be right there to walk with you. You know, that's the reality. You have to keep walking. I'm not through it yet, so I don't have any long-term wisdom to share with somebody. But I've met plenty of people in this process because Grace's story has gone international. We're getting calls and emails constantly. You know, a lot of the people are really stuck. They're angry. They're not forgiving. They're not having gone back to work yet. All those things, which I get. I mean, I definitely can empathize with those things. God doesn't want that. We know that, but that doesn't make it easy. You have to turn it over to him. It's the only way you can get through those thoughts. You know, Satan wants us in a pity party and it works. I mean, I've had many days that I've been in my own pity party over this situation and others. When you get out of those, you realize it's another day lost and you can never get that day back. So that's the little bit of advice I can give right now. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's that simplest thing that we really need, like the idea of you're going to have to walk through this. It's a decision to step when you know you have no idea how you're going to step, when you have no idea exactly what you're stepping into. You know, I'm grateful for your willingness to process while still very much stepping through a lot of things. Because you're having to choose to explore God, acknowledge God, see how God influences your life while there's still so much in your mind that's like, what is going on? And that ultimately is the kind of faith that Jesus is calling us to is not seek God because he makes sense and seems like a good God. It's to seek God, even in the moments where you're like, Job, God, I'm trying to honor you, but why are you doing this to me? <laughs> or like any number of the heroes of the faith who, as they sought God, hardship came upon them. And somehow, somehow, they were able to muster enough faith to keep stepping towards God. And so let's say somebody comes up to you now. Throughout your life, you've known God in different ways. But through this, it's probably honed your understanding of who God is. So if somebody came up to you and said, hey, I don't know who God is. Who is God to you, Scott? What would you say to them? That's a great question. I would say first that God is my savior. And the reason I would say that first is because nothing else matters unless you know where you're going. And so I presume they would ask then, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And then I would explain that. God created everything. 
And because of that, he also created us, and that makes it so that we have a responsibility to him. And what does that responsibility look like? And it looks like he expects us to not sin. And so the fact is, is, you know, we're wired to sin. And I would start asking them questions about their life so that they could see, okay, yeah, that's true. Then explain why God sent his son Jesus to save us. What's the process? What happened there? Why did he do that? Because he loves us that much. And then I would encourage that person to dig on their own. I'd encourage them to get into the word and see for themselves that what I just told them is true. And then ultimately explain that once that's true, what this whole thing is about is giving up the right to yourself. It's the old way that we all believed in as kids that we were trained, the American dream, right? You get married, you have 2.1 kids, 1.7 dogs, you retire early, you create a pile of cash and all the toys, and then the person with the most toys wins. That all's gone now. And the rest of your life becomes turning over your rights to yourself. And God starts teaching you about yourself and he takes on your personal training and that becomes the rest of your life. You know, what's great about how you started your answer is you talked about a savior. But at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about how you were a self-made man (laughs) until God brought you to a place of brokenness. A self-made man doesn't need a savior. Because they could save themselves. And so I love that where God has brought you to is this place of not just recognizing the need for a savior, but the beauty and the opportunity. Because what God's trying to do is bring us to abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And so the self-made man can ask and imagine a whole bunch of stuff. That life you talked about of, you know, the American dream and having all these things. And then there's Jesus over here inviting us to lose everything. And that seems like foolishness. The doctors thought y'all were foolish for taking on a child that in their minds was going to be a miserable 18 years plus however many adult years because they understood the technicality of Down syndrome, but they didn't understand the beauty and the opportunity. And what so many parents of children who have Down syndrome know is there is so much love. There's so much joy. Like the capacity for their children to love sometimes. Like I have friends who have a child who has Down syndrome and that's something they share often. It's like, my son loves more deeply than I think I ever could. Yeah, right? no, no, no. And so this is the beautiful thing that we're talking about here is yes, there can be loss. There can be sacrifice in seeking God. But what we're sacrificing pales in comparison to what God is actually offering. And even in what we lose, the way that he could bring restoration, the way he could do, like you said, the impossible. Man, there's this opportunity to trust and it's stepping into foolishness and unknowns and yet God keeps delivering over and over. So what you just said really is a profound point that requires me to expand on because Down syndrome children do love differently. I mean, I picture that they love like God loves. Mm. You know, people have said, well, now that Grace is in heaven, she doesn't have Down syndrome anymore. You know, my rebuttal, of course, is I think everyone in heaven has Down syndrome. Yeah. So at Grace's funeral, I spoke at her funeral and one of the things I made a comment on was that you know, many, many people, when we were going through the funeral procession line, said, boy, you guys did such a great job with Grace. And you know, God blinded us to her Down syndrome. That's why we did such a great job. I mean, we could never see it unless she was with somebody else. So when she was alongside regular kids, of course, you could see it. But other than that, we just never saw it. We never restricted her. So anyway, what I said at Grace's funeral relative to those comments we're receiving is that, you know, you don't get any credit in God's economy for loving somebody like Grace. She was easy. The only time I'm certain that I love like Grace, and even then I'm not 100% certain, is when I'm sleeping. What you get credit for in God's economy is loving the unlovable because you can't do that on your own. That's ultimately where I'm at today. I mean, Grace showed me how to do that. I had a walking angel with us that showed me, and that's where he's got me today is walking through that. And I'm one stubborn guy, so he keeps taking me over and over. He's relentless as a trainer. He's the best trainer ever because he's relentless. He won't uh, let you go to the next thing until you got this one down. So he's working hard on me right now. Yeah, that's that grace again, something we don't deserve, and yet God keeps doing it. So as we wrap up, If someone wanted to learn more about Grace's story, if someone wanted to connect with what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? We have set up a website and it's ouramazinggrace.net. 
So they would go to the website if they want to connect with me personally. We have a contact uh, section. So there's a little form you fill out and then it automatically sends me an email and then I would get a hold of somebody that wants to connect with me one-on-one. So that's the best way. Grace's life is on the website. That was the original reason to set it up. But what happened is as this story got traction, there became a believability factor you know, where people weren't believing me. So we set up the tragedy tab where I posted about 70% of the research. The reason only 70% is there's some of the research that's really intense and confidential that we're using for the court case. And so that's stuff we don't want to be putting on the website. But you can see what I explained relative to her case and all the details, the letters that we received from the state agencies there on the website, all those things so people can connect the dots. There's 200 interviews posted, and I have short little descriptions. So if you want to hear the whole story about Grace's hospital stay, you can hear that. So all those things are available on the website. There's a resource tab. What This thing has gotten so big, Paul, that that's why it's full-time. Yeah. You end up being a speaker, an advocate, a researcher, all kinds of different things. And none of this was expected. Yeah. That's why I'm so grateful at how God can sustain Because, yeah, sometimes we're invited into places where we do not have the capacity, we do not have the knowledge, we do not have the skills, and yet we're still invited into that place. (laughs) And the ways that God can show up, you know, it's like when Peter early in Acts, the teachers of law pulled him aside and demanded that he explain himself, how he feels like he can heal some guy outside of the temple. He was able to speak with words that weren't from him. Not just any words, too. Words that baffled the teachers of the law. How in the world does this uneducated guy talk like this? And that's what I want to encourage you in, is that that same spirit can be accessible to you. And the beauty of that is not only can it fill in the gap where your capacity is depleted, but it also can give wisdom and guidance where your humanity might want to go a different way. (laughs) Your humanity might want to push on something or attack on something. And meanwhile, God might be like, actually, I'm going to invite you to something else. And this is what's so beautiful about the spirit is we don't have to understand or have enough strength because the spirit understands and has enough strength. As we close out, is there anything else on your heart that God's putting for you to share? I have a lot of different things on my heart, you know, just playing off of what you just said. When we first decided to jump in, we seemed to have pretty clear direction and we just asked God to open up the doors and we'll walk through them. And if he wants to stop this, close the doors. And Mm -hmm. it was pretty simple. And that's all that's been happening is he just keeps opening up doors. My background is as a businessman and as a businessman, you've got to plan things. Everything we're doing now is because doors open. None of it's planned in advance. So it's completely different. The other thing that's been on my heart with Grace's case specifically is I see it in a lot bigger picture now. And I would encourage people to become grounded in their faith more than anything because there is going to be a need to share the gospel like there's never been on earth. We are headed into some very significant, severe times ahead. And people are going to be wondering why you have a calmness that you have. And you'll be able to share why if you're grounded in your faith. You will walk, you will run, dance through the streets, shouting praise to the one. You're healed, you're clean. Go out, tell the people what you've seen. Revived in him. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say about discernment, and one of my favorite passages comes from Philippians. When this was written, Paul found himself in a space where his discernment allowed him to see things significantly differently than those around him. Paul was imprisoned, and those around him had decided that that was bad, that that needed to change. Some might have blamed Paul for his imprisonment. Some might have said he needed to pray for escape. But Paul said something different. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says this, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You see, Paul's discernment allowed him to see that even if his chains were unjust, God was doing something bigger 
than his justice. God was using his chains to advance the gospel far further than Paul could have done on his own if he had been freed. Now, how did Paul get to this level of discernment to see his hardship as something that God was using for his glory? We have to go back to verse 9 for that. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's so much in there that we need to unpack if we want to be able to discern well. The first is this. The verse kicks off with the most important element of it. Love. That your love may abound more and more. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is the most important thing. You can know all things and be the best at all things, but without love, it's nothing, or it's troublesome, or it's a distraction. So in our situations, love has to be a core. And Paul says that our love may abound more and more in knowledge. So information, facts, truths, realities, these are all important. And gathering those can help us to understand the situation and what might need to be done. But this is where the next piece is incredibly important. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Our knowledge alone is not enough. There is an invitation here to deepen our depth of insight how it is we understand the information we're gathering, how it is we understand what our next step should be. And why should all this happen? So that we may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And those last pieces are ones that we forget too often because sometimes we want to solve our situation. But verse 11 makes two things clear. One, All of this comes through Jesus Christ. That is the source. Not our own intellect, not our own capacity, but Jesus Christ. And why? Well, that's the second piece. Because it's meant to be to the glory and praise of God. Not to our preservation, not to our comfort, not even to our desires, but to the glory and praise of God. Discernment is a continuing progressive thing. The invitation is that our love may abound more and more. So maybe you find yourself in a situation similar to Scott's, where the pain is still very deep and the injustice seems like a Goliath. You may have all the facts in front of you and alongside that invitations from God to love. And you're trying to figure out what in the world do I do? We long for a straightforward answer from God for what to do in our situation. But sometimes what he's inviting us to is to allow our love to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Because if Paul's imprisonment, which seemed like the worst case scenario, allowed him to be used for God's glory in far deeper ways than he could have with his freedom, then maybe God in his infinite wisdom knows how to use our situations for his glory in far greater ways than our best ideas. Discerning injustice is painful and confusing and infuriating and baffling and heartbreaking. When the days and weeks and months and years pass, we can find ourselves feeling hopeless. But God is a God of justice. He sees and understands the injustice around us far more deeply than we do, and he knows the greater justice that he's trying to accomplish. The invitation for us is to trust him in the midst, to seek him first above all things, and then to take the next best step that we can figure out, knowing that sometimes our steps will be misaligned, but God loves us still. Sometimes we will be called to be like Esther and fight the greater injustices. Sometimes we will be called to be like Jesus and allow the injustice to happen because something greater is at work. We alone in our intellect can't discern that, but God can. And so my prayer for you in the midst of your suffering is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Invite the Spirit to grow discernment within you. Allow discernment to change how you understand the suffering around you. And then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation, but feel like maybe you should, 
since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of their music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God? <laughs>